We're continuing our series in Colossians today, and I'm, I'm not going to lie, I've been really excited about this exact text uh, since we first started talking about preaching this book, so I want to jump straight to it if you guys are okay with this. Um, this. This is a big text, and I cannot imagine coming close to doing it justice, so we're going to pray and ask uh, for the Spirit to be, to be with us in this today, and then we're going to dive in. Jesus, we need you today. We need you uh, to be with us and be in our presence and remind us of your truth and the reality of who you are as Lord of the universe. Holy Spirit, as we dig into the text that, that you inspired and preserved for our benefit and the glory of God, we ask that you would be our interpreter today, that you would convict us and teach us and remind us and do all the ministry that Jesus promised you would do. Give us eyes to see uh, you as you really are, God, as you've revealed us, revealed yourself to us. Give us humble hearts to accept the reality of who you are and give us a posture of repentance and worship as we consider you as you actually are. We love you, Jesus. So we pray this boldly, expectantly in your name. Amen. We're going to be in Colossians 1 today, starting in verse 15. Uh, we've been in this series just a couple weeks, and I'm going to bring us up to speed really quick so that we can get into this. Remember, this is a letter written by Paul to the church at Colossae, a city that he had not visited yet, a church that he had not attended, but he heard word of a heresy uh, destroying and influencing this church from one of its pastors. And so he wrote this letter on behalf of that leader uh, to draw this church back to gospel truth and back to orthodoxy. And so we've been working our way through the introduction of the letter. Uh, Colossians has a pretty drawn out introduction, in part because Paul doesn't know this church, he doesn't know these people, and so he spends a lot of time on the front end relationally connecting himself to them and connecting them to his authority as an apostle. And so he talks about how thankful he is that the gospel is moving forward in the city of Colossae, and he talks about how he sees the evidence of the Spirit and the fruit of the life of the church in this church at Colossae. He includes them in the church Catholic, the universal church that God is expanding and moving throughout uh, the, all of creation. And he talks about the specific work of God to bring us into his church, that it's not some amazing thing we do, but that God himself qualifies us and includes us in his church. And then we get to our text today. So we're going to start in verse 15. He's just um, talked about this idea that it is by the power of God that the church becomes the church and that uh, the dead receive life and the lost receive salvation. And then he says this, starting in the 15th verse of the first chapter of the letter of the Colossians. Read this. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. 
And in Him, all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And this is the word of the Lord. What a text, amen? This is the stinking red meat of the New Testament right here. Uh, Man, this is one of those texts that you just kind of read it and you're like, well, I mean, okay, I'm good. Like, it doesn't need, it seems like, a huge amount of explanation. But the reality is, this is one of the most fleshed out Christologies in all of the whole of Scripture. Now, if you don't know what that word means, that's okay. I had to pay to go to seminary to figure that out. Uh, That just means um, the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We talk about that a lot, right? That that as a church, our our vision is is, is to see ourselves so, uh, so zoned into this idea of Jesus and family and mission, right? That a life that is wrapped around the person and work of Jesus is a set-apart and a unique kind of life. That, that that kind, that the person and work of Jesus, that kind of thing changes a person. Uh, the, I, I, uh, this is maybe a couple months ago, I was going back and, and listening to some really old Red Tree sermons from, from like the first six months this church existed. And, and there was this amazing thing. I, I was, it was uh, one of the first times that Comstock ever preached at Red Tree back when they were in the, in, in, in the, the Sky Music Lounge. And he said, man, we just believe that Jesus actually changes people. And that's, that's what we're talking about here. That's a Christology, that the, that the person and work of Jesus actually impacts creation and actually changes lives. And that's what we're getting into today. So what are we going to do with this text for the next 90 minutes? I, I mean, 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll say that. <laughs> Here's what I think we're going to do. I'm going to point out just a couple historical and textual pieces because there's, there's just a couple little things. This text is pretty clear on its own, but there's a couple things that can trip us up, and we'll, we'll talk about that. And I think ultimately as we kind of work our way back through this, it's going to remind us of one of Paul's teachings in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to end out our time with Jesus' own teaching out of Mark 10, and then we'll end our time with prayer and communion. Sound good? Cool. I hope so, because we're doing it. So, the first thing you need to know is that this text marks a break in the flow of Colossians. I mentioned already that we're still in the introduction to the letter, and we are. The introduction is basically going to continue um, on through, through most of the rest of this chapter, and he's going to start to transition into the meat of the letter at the end of chapter one. But, but we're, still <coughs> we're still in the introduction, but we see this distinct shift in the flow and phrasing of the letter, and the reason is this. Paul is invoking a hymn here. He's essentially stopping and quoting a hymn of the ancient church. If you go and study this text on your own, which you should, you'll find that this text is called the Christ hymn. The Christ hymn of the New Testament. It's put next to uh, the hymn that Paul quotes in Philippians as some of the, the early deep theology of the church. Now, there is some debate about the origin of this hymn, some, uh, some theologians and some really smart people think that 
uh, this was an existing ancient hymn of the church and that Paul invoked it in order to connect the teaching he was about to give to the larger theology of the church. Some people think that Paul took an existing hymn and modified it with some of his themes for this letter, and some people think that Paul wrote this hymn specifically for this church so that they would be able to learn this theology and carry it forward in their life and their worship. And, and the reality is, it doesn't really matter. Um, I, I would tend to say it seems most likely through textual evidence and those things that Paul is um, invoking an established known hymn, whether or not he wrote it. It seems pretty unlikely that he would modify an existing hymn, but ultimately it doesn't really matter. What does matter is for us to realize that our theology is taught to the church oftentimes by our music, right? And this is this is why the scripture says, this is why Paul says, when you get together, sing a psalm, sing a hymn, sing a spiritual song, because the collection of these things, when we sing the scripture and we sing our theology and we sing in a way that's just connected and following the leading of the spirit, when we bring those three things together, our worship time ends up being something that actually draws the church into unity with Christ and draws us into the work of the kingdom. Hymns are super important. And so whether Paul was penning a new hymn for this church to carry forward or referencing an old one, he's, he's reminding us here that what we sing is often what we end up believing. Does that make sense? So he gives them this hymn, and we're, we're essentially... Uh, we're we're going to walk back through this and just kind of get ourselves through some of these phrases. So um, the first thing you need to know is that the structure of this hymn is important for us. And I don't know if you're the kind of person that marks up your Bible, but this is a text uh, worthy of your highlighter or your pen. Um, (laughs) There's two structural pieces I want you to think about here. This hymn is broken up into identity statements concerning Jesus. This is where you see he is sorts of statements in this hymn. And then influence statements about the influence of Jesus. These are the all things statements or everything statements you see in this hymn. I would encourage you as we read back through this to mark those. Because this hymn is telling us two really important things about reality. It's saying who Jesus is and what he does. It's talking about his identity and his influence, and it's going to repeat that over and over to build this larger Christology, this larger theology of the person and work of Jesus. So let's start at the beginning here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. Dang. Like right out of the gate, you ju- we just jump into the weeds. He is the image of the invisible God. I was telling the staff this week, I said, man, we could do a stinking three-month series on this text. There's so much meat in here, and, and you know, it's, it's just what it is, so we're going to work through it as well, we can, as well as we can. But the, right out of the gate here, we get this phrase, the image of the invisible God, and there's a lot loaded in there for the Jewish audience and the Roman audience of Jesus' day, but for our purpose, let me point out two things to us. The, the word here, image, is, is the Greek word where we get the word icon, right? And the whole idea here is this. The God of the Old Testament is ultimately unknowable. He is separate and he is other, and he is holy, and he is sacred. To see him is to die, according to the scripture. 
God himself places Moses in the cleft of the rock and says, you cannot see God and live, right? But Jesus makes the invisible God visible. He makes the invisible God known. And there is power in that. Right off the bat, we are saying the God of the universe, who is so big and so huge and so powerful and so other, he is knowable in Jesus. Come on. That in and of itself is a uniquely Christian articulation of theology that sets apart the gift we've been given in Revelation from basically most of theology in existence. The God of the universe is knowable. Man. And then it says he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, this is an important phrase for us to think about for just a second because it's really easy to misconstrue. In fact, this phrase became the root of one of the earliest heresies in the established church, the Arian heresy that uh, divided the church, almost destroyed the Christian church, by the way. At some point, you should sit down and read the story of St. Athanasius, the lone dude who stayed orthodox when the rest of the church fell away. It's a beautiful story to God's sovereignty and his preserving his revelation. But, but the Arian heresy taught that Jesus was not actually divine, that he was not actually God in the flesh, but that he was the greatest of all created beings. And they use this text as a proof text. He's the firstborn of creation. That means he is a creation. But that's a misunderstanding of what's actually being said here. See, in in this phrase firstborn at this point in human history has a dual meaning. It has a literal meaning, which means firstborn, but there's also a figurative meaning that speaks about authority. See, in this world, in this In this part of human history, the firstborn was the one who had authority over the rest of the family. And so when Paul invokes the image of firstborn, says Jesus is the firstborn of creation, he's not saying that Jesus is a part of creation. He's saying that Jesus has authority over all creation. And that's fleshed out in the rest of the hymn. It's really important to make that distinction, by the way, because anyone that says that Christ is a creation and not the Lord of creation is not a Christian, and they're not speaking to you Christian theology, which is why we have to be really careful because the Arian heresy is alive and well today in the Mormon church, in the Jehovah's Witness church that teaches that Jesus is a part of creation. And so when those folks come to us and say joyfully and in love that their beliefs represent a different denomination within Christianity, we have to respectfully but firmly reject that because Christ is not a creation. He's the firstborn of creation. He rules it. He has authority over it. Does that make sense? So move on here. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus' authority over creation as the firstborn of creation is now spelled out in detail. In Christ, all things were created. All things. And we're not going to dig into all the language here, but when he goes into heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, he's saying, listen, there is nothing in existence outside this phrase, all things. Physical, spiritual. Like, sentient, non-sentient, 
rich, poor, uh, authoritative, lacking authority, all things, everything that is, is under Christ and under his authority. That is about as big a statement as you can make. Now, there is a formula that we're given here in this text that's going to actually play out in the end of the hymn. I need you to see this. Some of your translations, uh, in the very beginning, it says, for, in my ESV, says, for by him all things were made. And there's a little footnote there. Um, the actual word there is in him all things were made. And, and there's some translation notes, depending on what translation you have. It may say by him, it may say in him. Um, and you're like, why, why does that matter? In Christ is a deeply loaded theological phrase that is at the core of Pauline theology. And we're not going to dig into that today, but you just need to know that, that Paul used this phrase, in Christ, as one of his go-to descriptors for what it means to be saved and what it means to be in participating in the kingdom of God. And what we get here is that we see Jesus's relationship to the creation, Jesus's uh, influence over the creation comes down to the creation is made in Christ, it's made through Christ, and it's made for Christ. There is power in that. All things, all of reality, all of existence exists in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. I mean, dang. <laughs> That's a big statement. And we, I want you to, to essentially take that little formula and put it in your back pocket, because we're going to come back to it at the very end of the hymn. But I want you to notice that what this section is telling us here, and again, I know like it, it's pretty obvious if you just read it, but I need you to think about this. Jesus made all of creation by his power and for himself. And, and, and I, want you to, I want you to think about those two pieces. Paul is telling us that Jesus contains within him the authority and the power to create reality. And then he did it for himself because he wanted it. So there's a lot packed into that. Moving on. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Ultimately, this simply continues our theme, but it fleshes it out a little more. Jesus is saying that Paul is or Paul is saying that Jesus is before all things. He is pre-existent. He is not a part of the creation, but he is before the creation. This is an authority statement of Jesus' uh, lording over creation. This is also a pre-existent statement that Jesus existed when creation did not. And then he gives us this phrase, which I love, in him all things hold together. The idea here is that Jesus is the sustainer of reality. And we need to think about that. According to the scripture, all that is, is at the pleasure of Jesus. That is crazy. From neutron stars to subatomic particles, from the laws of physics to pop music. All that exists, exists because Jesus tells it to. That it pleases him to continue to sustain existence. Remember that next time Kesha puts out a single. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
<laughs> he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So now the hymn turns and we move from Jesus' authority as the creator, sustainer, to Jesus' authority over the church. You would think that saying Jesus has authority over all things would include the church. Uh, it does. But, but Paul makes a distinction here for us that I think it's important. He goes out of his way to especially mention this. The phrase on the end is, it's, it's just wonderful. Paul's essentially reminding us that the promise of the gospel for the church is eternity. Jesus is the beginning of eternity. He was the first to raise from the dead, and he has authority over all the church that will raise to eternity. And what we see in this part of the text is that in everything, whether we're talking about creation or we're talking about eternity, Jesus's authority reigns in everything. Not just this world and this existence and time and the passage and movement of matter and particles, but in all of the grandness of eternity, Jesus is Lord. Dang. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And the text racks up here with a bang. Jesus is fully God. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Nothing, what Paul is saying here, nothing that is God, nothing that makes God God is lacking from Jesus. Jesus is deity. He is God. That is, again, a huge statement. And this deity, this nature of Christ, allows him to work through himself to reconcile all things to himself. That whole creation, that whole existence that he made and that he is sustaining, he can then choose to reconcile to himself, with himself, by his blood on the cross. Beloved, this is God and God's plan. We're talking about Christ operating within the limits of his own authority and his own will to will and to work existence as he pleases. And what he pleases is to reconcile a broken and dead creation to himself. Come on. Now remember that little formula, formation I told you about, that I told you to put in your back pocket, right? The in through four. In describing Jesus' authority over creation, we saw uh, the authority of Christ. We saw that the, the, the creation, right, was in Christ, through Christ, for Christ. Here, when we move from creation to salvation, we see that salvation comes from the deity in Christ. Right? In Him, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. And through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things. We see that the, this formula kind of pops back up, right? Salvation is in Christ. It is through Christ. But 
the, the, the four part is left off. Do you notice that? We get in through four in creation. And then in salvation, we get in through. And I love that because the four is left just kind of assumed. It's left dangling. When you sit back and you go, wow, existence, reality is in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. Salvation is <coughs> in Christ and through Christ. And then the hymn ends, and you're left there contemplating your own place within reality and your own salvation received by Christ. And the realization hopefully comes to you that your salvation is in Christ and through Christ and for Christ. You have been saved in him and through him and for him. You are his treasured possession that he paid the price for, that he sought out. I love, I've taught this before, I love Jesus' parables in Matthew 13. And, and, and what I love about uh, the way Jesus tells parables is that when you read Jesus' parables, what you'll see most of the time is that the first and primary interpretation of a parable is a story about Jesus. And then the secondary interpretation of a parable is about his church, right? And in Matthew 13, he tells these two uh, parallel parables, right? A man's walking through a field, he finds a treasure, he goes, he sells all he has, he buys the treasure. And then he says, a merchant was out looking for expensive pearls and he found a pearl of great price. And so he went and sold all that he had and he bought the pearl. And those things, there is a truth that those parables are telling us as the church that the gospel is worth anything and everything and we should gladly pay any price to follow and have Christ and participate in his kingdom. That is true and I'm not discounting that, but we have to remember that the first place we go in those parables is that Jesus found a treasure in a field and he paid the ultimate price to have it. And Jesus found a pearl of great price and he paid everything to have it. That's insane because we know that we're not a treasure and that we're not a pearl of great price. We know that we're sinful and dead and selfish, but yet Christ in himself, in his deity, through his authority, saw us as a treasure worth possessing and he saved us unto himself for himself as a treasure to have for eternity. Beloved, this is the gospel. Think about what Paul is actually saying here. This text is, so, is making such a huge claim, right? Such a massive, huge claim. That when you read this, when you hear this, you probably have one of two responses. And maybe you're in the middle, but you, you probably go one of two ways. Some of us, we hear this, and it just, it just lights up your spirit, and you're just like, dang, praise Jesus. Like, let's, let's get the band back up there. Like, let's do some worship. Like, God is amazing. That's awesome. I want to hoop. I want to holler right now. And some of you hear that, and you're like, I mean, dang, <laughs> that's a big statement. And it feels just kind of, if we're honest, kind of foolish. And we know we're not supposed to say that because this is church, right? But maybe it feels a little underwhelming when you read it and you're like, okay. That's huge. That's a weird statement. So you guys, Paul is saying 
that Jesus Christ is the hinge point of all of existence. That's insanely huge of a claim to make. And let's be honest. It is counterintuitive to the point of seeming foolishness. To say that a rabbi who lived in a country on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago is the hinge point of all of reality is a really weird statement. If what Paul is saying is true, then this dude who lived in a place and had friends and opinions, a dude who got sick and ate meals and went to the bathroom and clipped his toenails, this dude is somehow the hinge point of all of reality and all of time and all of existence and all of physics from subatomic particles to neutron stars, a rabbi 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world. That's crazy. And guys, here's the thing. That is crazy. We have to acknowledge that. We have to actually sit in that craziness. Think about the text Brad read to us earlier from 1 Corinthians. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's ludicrous. The statement that Paul is making about Christ, this unavoidable biblical theology, this grand, all-inclusive statement that Jesus Christ is the single defining moment of all of existence, is such a grand statement that anyone who has not met and experienced Christ will hear that and go, that's stupid. That's dumb. That's just some random guy. I'm sure he taught good stuff. I'm sure his ethical system and his philosophy were beneficial for human flourishing. But you can't tell me he's the hinge point of reality. Galaxies billions of light years away don't care about a rabbi from 2,000 years ago. Right? Wrong. No, they actually do. They actually declare his glory. They were actually made in him and through him and for him and they're precious to him and he named each one of them and he set them in place and he sustains them by his pleasure. He tells them where to go and where to rest. He stores up the stars and the rain and the weather, and he controls the planet, and he guides them on its ways, and he designed physics and gravity and atoms, and he loves them all because he's their creator and their sustainer and their Lord. Guys, we have to sit back and realize that the gospel is foolishness. But man, is it wonderful, wonderful foolishness. It is life. It is freedom. And it's true. That actually 
best represents and reflects reality. That the God of the universe saw this little backwoods planet and these little selfish inwardly turned people as so precious and so valuable that he poured himself out and was found in human appearance and humbled himself to the point of death, even death upon a cross because he actually loves his creation and he actually loves us and he actually sees his image stamped in us as his special creation and he actually longs to see all of existence reconciled to him and us walking in relationship with him for eternity. That's actually real. And when our friends and our family, and precious people to us who, who are lost as lost could be, hear that and go, bro, that's crazy. We only have one answer. <laughs> yeah, it is. And yet it's true. And my boast is in Christ. And my joy is in Christ because he, for some reason, I can't wrap my brain around, even though he is the God of the universe, he sees me as a precious treasure and he died for me. And I don't see it, but he does. And he wants that for you too. Guys, that's the truth of the gospel. It's the hope we hold to. It's the truth we proclaim and I would, I would ask you if, you, if you are here and you hear the grandness of the Christology of the New Testament, the hugeness of the claims made about our Lord and Savior Jesus, and something in your heart bumps up against that as just a brick wall that you can't surpass, I would encourage you to reflect on this. What if that's actually true? What would you expect to see? What if? What if Jesus is actually Lord? What would he do with his lordship? What would that mean for you and me and for existence? What if the ludicrous, <laughs> foolish statement of the Christian gospel is actually true? What would that do to reality? Well, I've got good news. Jesus answered that question very directly. <laughs> Turn to Mark chapter 10. should have had a bookmark there. I knew I was going there. In this text, Jesus is nearing the end of his life. He's uh, on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. And his best friends think he's on his way to Jerusalem to start uh, a political movement that will put them in authority and power. And so they get into an argument about who Jesus loves best and how the authority will break down in this new kingdom that Jesus is going to establish when Jerusalem when Israel's free from Rome. And they start arguing about who's going to be at Jesus' right hand and his left hand and all these different things. And Jesus shuts them down and he goes, what are you guys doing? What are you talking about? And starting in verse 42, he says this, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, 
And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man, this is Jesus' title for himself, even me came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Beloved, let me tell you something. Jesus is the ultimate preeminent authority of all of reality. And he chooses in that place of power and control and authority to use it to serve us. You want to talk about the foolishness of the Christian gospel? It's not that God chose to become a rabbi 2,000 years ago. He's God. He made a reality. He can do stuff like that. That shouldn't be that foolish to consider. What's foolishness is that that God, with that kind of power and that kind of authority, uses it to love and serve creatures like you and me. What have we done to garner such favor? The psalmist says, who am I that you are mindful of me? Who are we? What, what the heck does Jesus possibly see in us? But man, he does. He does. He sees his image. He sees what will be. He sees us with eternal perspective and beloved He loves you. You are the beloved of Christ. He longs for intimacy and relationship and eternity with you. Come on. What news? What a gospel. What hope. What freedom that the God of the universe would care about you and me. And yet he does. And he brings about a salvation in himself and through himself and for himself. Amen? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for how you love us. Thank you for the amazing news of the gospel. God, thank you that you use your authority not to crush and not to manipulate and not to control, but to serve God. I would not do that. Just being honest and confessional, I am so self-centered. I would use that kind of authority to my own end. But Lord, you thought of us. Jesus, give us eyes to see you. Give us eyes to see you as you truly are, as Lord of reality. May the grandness of this declaration in this hymn cut through the callousness of our hearts and cut through our small-mindedness and cut through the, the blinders we have on reality. And God, give us eyes to see you. See you as you are. bend our knees to you. That the news of your gospel might be life to us and not folly.